and welcome to Ox Tales, the podcast that serves up rich and surprising stories about food and how it makes us who we are from the world's longest-running food symposium, the Oxford Food Symposium. I'm your host, Anna Sigurther. How to divine the future with a liver. One, buy two sheep's livers from your local butcher or sacrifice a sheep. Two, find an audience with an important yes or no question. Three, pull one of the livers out of the bag at random. Four, consult your ancient Babylonian texts that instruct you in reading a yes or no to 12 points on the liver. Five, tally up the yeses and nos to see which one prevails. And if you've got more yeses, you have a yes answer. If you've got more noes, you have a no answer. Amanda Couch reads livers to tell the future. This might make you think should be more the crystal ball reading, late night television, selling over the phone fortunes type of person. But Amanda is a serious professional artist and educator living in England, who would much more likely be found writing academic papers for a conference than gazing into a crystal ball. She's also an unlikely contributor to a food symposium. Reading a liver hardly equates to eating it. But the 2016 Oxford Food Symposium was all about awful, rejected and reclaimed foods. And as you heard, if you listened to our first episode, you'll know that the very idea of awful, often defined as viscera or cast-off trimmings, has a lot more to its history and meaning than just being rejected and unwanted. So imagine, if you will, a scene at the symposium in which a neatly dressed Englishwoman is standing before an audience of chefs, scholars, producers, and food historians, and has just been asked to answer one of the century's biggest questions by divining the answer using the raw sheep's liver she holds in her hand. The question... On an independent United Kingdom. The UK has voted to leave the European Union. Will the UK invoke Article 50? That is, the Article 50 pertaining to Brexit. Like, if you invoke this particular article, which is part of the EU regulations, that means that you trigger the process of actually leaving the, the EU. Amanda was reading this liver only a few weeks after the UK had voted to leave the EU. Um, so even though the referendum result was that the, the UK decided to leave, they wanted to know whether actually that Article 50, which would be that official, um, you know, setting that official um, ball rolling would actually happen. Holding a liver in her hands and examining it point by point, according to ancient instructions laid out by fortune tellers of Mesopotamia, Amanda Couch stood in front of the audience at Oxford in July of 2016 to answer the question. Was Brexit really going to happen? The audience, who overwhelmingly had voted to remain, was on the edge of its seat. You know, according to the Conservative government's plan, we shouldn't be, we're supposedly invoking Article 50 in March. So we've still got time to see whether the liver was correct. And what did the liver say? We find out later. The first time I spoke to Amanda was this February, one month before Article 50 was set to be decided, so regardless of the liver's answer, we still had time to find out whether it was correct. But before we find out what a sheep's liver had to say about Brexit, let's find out more about this particular medium of the message itself. The liver. At one time, liver divination was an entirely common and trusted method used to make important decisions. 
In the first century BCE, the Roman lawyer Cicero said, nearly everybody employs entrails in divining. The specific practice of using a liver for divination was called haruspice, and it was part of a broader practice of divination using entrails known as extispice. What happened during an extispice or haruspice divination was this. An animal got sacrificed, and then its guts or liver were pulled out and read by the haruspex, the liver diviner, for a message from the gods to answer a question. The thinking was that at that moment of sacrifice, the gods who were outside the animal merged with the animal and and wrote their um, their message on the liver. Um, so there was this coming together of the inside and the outside. It was like a divine magic eight ball. Should we plant this crop? Should these people get married? The earliest record of this kind of divination, which is from about 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, shows that it was first used as a common method to make decisions in military campaigns. Deciding whether to advance, for example, into battle at that particular moment, and if it came out as negative at that moment, then the, the uh, army would stay put. You know, there are documents saying that, you know, we've, we've um, slaughtered a number of animals now and we don't know what to do, you know, kind of messages to the king. What do we do? This documentation indicates how seriously the practice was taken. Even the king had to take no for an answer from a liver. And it was widespread. All of the ancient texts and bronze or clay liver-shaped models that have been discovered show that haruspice and extispice happened commonly all throughout the ancient world. Um, you know, it travelled from Babylonia and Mesopotamia um, through, you know, the sort of Middle East, through there's, there's been um, models found in Turkey and in Israel. On to Greece, where... There's depictions of haruspice, you know, people showing livers, and there's this one beautiful um, kind of stella, a statue of, um, of a woman holding a liver. There's even been Etruscan haruspice models found in what is present-day Italy. So it travelled across the ancient world, and it was pretty wide, widespread... Um, and in, in, we certainly know also that these kind of diviners would have been in, in Greece, particularly high brow and low born people were doing liver divination. Um, it's just that because it's, it's um, documented in those kind of places, but it's not so much in, in these kind of other, other um, societies. Maybe it was like Cicero said. Maybe everybody was doing it. In fact, beyond Amanda, who is a definite outlier... There are cultures today who practice various forms of entrail divination. But why the liver in particular? Livers were prized for divination because they were thought in many parts of the ancient world to be the seat of the soul. Surely a choice place for a god to inscribe a message. From a sheer anatomical standpoint, though, the liver is just the largest organ, whose function is critical to survival, and, perhaps most important yet, because of the way it's situated in the body and the texture of it, the liver functions as a kind of relief mold, an imprinted substance that carries not only the messages from the gods, but, as Amanda likes to look at it, also a kind of documentation of the life of the animal. For me, this liver is like a kind of piece of plasticine that gets moulded by the different types of, you know, the different shapes and the different kind of forms of, the, of these different organs in that belly cavity. And then when the animal is either sacrificed in ancient times or here kind of butchered, then you've got this object that kind of tells you not only about what has happened within, you know, how that's been formed within the belly cavity, 
quality, but also in the past you would have had, and even now possibly, you would have holes that were from parasites. And obviously if the animals got parasites, that kind of speaks about the um, conditions that that animal might be lived in, it might be living in, and therefore, you know, what's the kind of wider environment that is creating that form or those different kind of morphological shapes on that liver within the body. So I love this idea that it is, if you think about it in terms of what the ancients believed, which was that the the, at that moment of sacrifice, the gods who were outside the animal merged with the animal and and wrote their their message on the liver. So there was this coming together of the inside and the outside. And then you can look at it from this kind of contemporary secular way that that object within the animal is conditioned by um, the condition of the animal and the way it lived in the environment. So whether it was well treated, whether it was well nourished, um, whether it had parasites or not. The liver bears a message, and whether that message is mystical or just plain forensic is up to the interpreter. Which brings us back to our interpreter, Amanda, and our meta-question for the omniscient liver guiding us through the story. What drove a modern-day artist like Amanda Couch to an ancient fortune-telling practice? The answer requires a bit of a detour, back to Amanda's early life. Growing up, Amanda was an anxious child who, as long as she could remember, was afraid of being poisoned to death. So I used to um, wash my hands a lot. My knuckles, especially in winter, would be kind of bleeding. It probably didn't help that she grew up during the start of the HIV-AIDS pandemic, a time where public health advertising campaigns in the UK flooded her young brain with images of death and vague but sinister warnings. And there is no known cure. In the kind of mid-80s, they had these adverts which kind of came through the door and were on the television with these images of tombstones and this kind of voice saying that you... It was very ambiguous. Um, and I, I don't, definitely don't remember them be, there being a, um, you know, kind of stating what really HIV or AIDS was, but this voice saying, don't die of ignorance. And that, to me, meant that I had to find out about all kind of diseases to make sure that I didn't catch things or poisons. I was really frightened of things that might, might poison me, like whether they were natural or, you know, sort of plants and things like that. So I was very worried about deadly nightshade. Amanda's anxiety and state of constant vigilance for something that might kill her unsettled not only her mind, but her body too. I think that a lot of my anxiety used to play out in the kind of stomach. Amanda began experiencing digestive problems that became chronic into her adulthood and came to a particularly stressful head while she was training to be an art teacher a job that required her to sit very closely with students for extended periods of time. Um, so you're sitting there with somebody one-to-one in a small space. So we're in a studio space and you might be sat very close to one another, kind of looking at a painting or, you know, in a kind of small confined space. And you realise that you you might need to fart. Um, and at that point, when you realise that, you aren't now listening to that student. You're not in that space with them. You are inside your body trying to stop that from happening. What do you do in that situation? Do you let it out? Or do you hold it hold it in? And then how, what, but what kind of impact does that have when one tenses and tries to hold back kind of farting? That you can't be vulnerable, you can't open yourself up to a student or, you know, be um, open. 
Amanda found herself both frustrated at the discomfort of the situation and fascinated by it. How much her own digestive system could wreak havoc with her mental state. So she began researching solutions, but not in the way you might imagine, by surfing WebMD or booking an appointment with the doctor. She did what she does best as an academic. She started a literature review. Was looking at um, ideas of how we digest knowledge and um, how we take it in and how we kind of process it for ourselves. And then that was metaphorical at that time, but then it became much more kind of material in relation to the actual digestive system. You know, it's kind of looking at different histories of the body. These histories of different parts of the body came from anthropology, art history, medical research and ancient texts. And this is how she discovered heruspicy for the first time. However, Amanda may be an artist, but she is surely not a mystic. She prefers to tackle the unknown with facts and research. So if Amanda was to bring Hyruspicy into a performance, she wanted to find a way that seemed authentic for her. In ancient Mesopotamian, there would have been kind of lots of cleansing, lots of particular costumes to wear, kind of sacred this or sacred that. You know, I wanted to remove all of those kind of associations. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that as, uh, in terms of research, but I don't want to emulate that or even, um, you know, fake it. I, I, yeah, I didn't want to create some kind of false idea of sort of say, the sacred. Um, so whoever my audience was, I would give them a little introduction to what the history is. And I kind of talk about my own kind of personal history in relation to the liver. And I also talk about how I am kind of framing it in relation to chance strategies in art. Rather than framing her liver divination practice as a message from some god, Amanda framed it as a practice in artistic chance-taking, a school of thought developed by artists such as the famous Dada in the 20th century. And so chance, when you use chance to kind of make a composition or to make a decision about something then it's kind of undermining that kind of the supposed power of the artist or this 19th century romantic idea of the kind of male um, artistic genius um, you know having this kind of power so definitely there was that sense of um, kind of removing or um, kind of taking away from those intellectual kind of enlightenment kind of ideas about what art is and this kind of aesthetic value of art and these hierarchies of art and kind of um, returning them back to where they maybe were in kind of um, kind of uh, prehistoric times when kind of art was connect art objects wouldn't have were connected to kind of ritualistic acts. When dealing with chance, whether you see an outcome as fact or fate depends on your belief system. But Amanda sees a bridge between these belief systems in the practice of divination. What particularly interests me, I suppose, about kind of ecstasy, which is the wider practice of looking at all of the entrails, um, is that it's sort of, it's this kind of space between kind of religious and spiritual kind of understanding or um, kind of problem solving in a way and kind of connections to the gods um, and some kind of anatomy and um, it's kind of been described as a kind of magical anatomy so um, you know they are looking inside um, even in these 2000 years before you know BC they were looking inside animals trying to understand what was going on with these animals, but also with 
the the kind of wider landscape so making that connection between the insides and the outsides and okay they were thinking about it in relation to you know kind of a message from the gods but that is kind of all bound up in trying to gather this knowledge about the world that they were inhabiting at that time. Early scientific inquiry was rooted in the divine and the connecting of the insides with the outsides. And Amanda says it's even found in the development of the study of human anatomy and Western medicine. Um, And, you know, I think that's quite exciting for me is that this kind of an anatomical um, connection, like it's sort of, you know, the altar being like an anatomy parading theatre that you might have found Mm -hmm. in um, in the 16th and 17th centuries in in Europe, which were, Mm -hmm. again, you know, very religious places in some ways because there were there were these surgeons going in and physicians um, kind of there as well trying to understand what it was that God had made inside human beings inside bodies um, so that was a kind of form of a communing with God as well to try and um, understand yeah make have more understanding of God's creations Whether communing with God or just a pile of guts, there is one thing in common among the ancient and the modern understanding of divination, the diviner herself. It is she who must somehow give an accurate reading of what is there, but it begs the question, what does accuracy even mean? Which brings us back to Amanda, performing the divination at the Oxford Food Symposium. When we left the room, we were just about to hear what the liver's answer was to the question, Will the UK invoke Article 50 and leave the EU permanently? And the answer? Um, At that time, the the liver said um, it wouldn't. This is what she told me the first time I spoke to her in February 2017, just a month before Article 50 was set to be decided upon. And when we spoke again later in the spring, she was sheepish because, well, they did invoke Article 50. Well, I guess, first of all, the liver at the Oxford Food Symposium was turned out to be wrong regarding Article 50 in Brexit. Yes. Um, oh, I don't know. I have a confession to make that I suspect that the liver was actually right, but my analysis of the reading was wrong. And I don't know if that is um, something that you <laughs> want to even go into. But um, I'm, I am obviously horrified by that, but actually also quite excited by that kind of possibility of doing a piece of research um, and then it's your interpretation of the results that goes wrong and is and is misanalyzed. And I started to realise perhaps I've been, uh, you know, I'd marked things down wrong because I got um, taken up in the sort of situation in the kind of moment. Um, Right. Okay. So you felt that perhaps you um, weren't so true to your interpretation because uh, what you felt from the audience, they wanted the liver to say it will not pass. And so you were uh, influenced. Yes, I think I I actually made just, I think, a very simple mistake when I was marking down the kind of positive and negative um, because of being caught up in the moment and being kind of anxious in that kind of performative moment. And that especially at the Oxford Food Symposium, it was the first time I'd done it um, and being kind of, you know, not at all knowing what was going to happen and being kind of dragged along by the will of the will of the kind of participants in that room. 
Because her eagerness to not let down the crowd influenced her reading, Amanda subconsciously divined the crowd instead of the liver. I, you know, and, and then you think, well, how would I have felt about telling everybody that that would have happened, that it was wrong, that we were going to be triggering Article 50 and leaving the EU? That would have been horrifying. We won't know whether this is something that happened in ancient Haruspice, whether the diviner just told the crowd what they wanted to hear. It seems kind of like human nature to do so. But then again, maybe that's what the liver is there for, to mitigate human nature. Um, I've in some way I've been using it, like probably in absolutely the wrong way or, or the antithesis of what I think that I want to do with it. Like I've been sort of trying to learn from it intellectually um, or um, trying to just learn from it as like a diagram or as a science rather than something that's more um, uh, to use on myself. I think that for me, we live in this kind of world where we have to buy insurance and we've got to think about our future and we've got to get pensions, but it's all a facade, it's all a construct. Um, and actually, you know, we the, the coming down to the very fact is that we have no idea when we are going to be removed from life. We, we just don't know. We could walk out tomorrow, fall down the stairs and, you know, get run over by a bus. So it's, for me, I suppose there's this chance kind of embraces and, and in some ways perhaps addresses the fact that we have no idea, you know, when we are going to die. And yet, actually, if we just, you know, we're a bit more allowing for what will happen will be, um, then we could live much more in the moment and, and enjoy the play of that, perhaps. For Amanda, the liver is the medium of the message, the intermediary between the outside and the inside, God and earth, and between her body and her mind. Practicing heruspice for her means accepting uncertainty, something Amanda has always tried to avoid by arming herself with information. But by learning little by little to disarm her mind and trust the liver, Amanda is learning to trust her gut. Thanks to Amanda Couch. You can find her paper from the 2016 Symposium on Google eBooks. Links provided in our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk slash podcast. Oxtails is produced by me, Anna Sigrether, with editorial oversight provided by the brilliant Naomi Duguid and Fiona Sinclair. This show is made possible both by the Friends and the Board of Trustees of the Oxford Symposium, with a special thanks to Ursula Heinzelman and Elizabeth Luard. Our theme music is by Thomas Krauss. Other music in this episode was by Ava Glendinning and Michael Levy. And for a complete list of sourced audio, please visit our website. To learn more about the Oxford Symposium, that website again is oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Follow us on Twitter at OxfordFoodSymp and Instagram OxfoodSymposium. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and give us a review. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week with our last oxtail of the season. So stay with us. <laughs>